Okay, we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to open there, it should be right at the front of your Bibles. <laughs> Easy enough to find. Okay, today we begin our study of the Sabbath. It'll take us all the way through Thanksgiving. Um, and I want to say now that you have to pay attention to some of this stuff. Some of it can be kind of complicated, um, especially when we're trying to dig back into an ancient culture's religious practice and what that looks like. Um, so it's a subject uh, typically in our time that has two responses. Either people sort of legalistically keep the Sabbath as a rule, uh, or they generally don't even think much about it. If we look back about 50 years or so ago, there were laws in certain towns and states about the Sabbath. They were often known as blue laws. And they either made businesses close entirely, or they limited their hours, or what they could sell on Sundays. Uh, according to Cornell Law School, the term blue law originates from laws by England enacted through the American colonies to protect Christian Sabbath as mandated by the Fourth Commandment. So that's where they came from. And then according to a 1984 article in Texas Monthly, the first Texas blue law prohibiting working, drinking, horse racing, gambling, and other heathen practices <laughs> went into effect in 1863. I don't know what the other heathen practices is, but I'm kind of worried. But part of what makes all this interesting is that the Sabbath these laws were attempting to protect is actually on Saturday, uh, the seventh day. Now, Sunday is the first day of the week, and the New Testament church worshiped together on Sunday, which is why we do. But observe that Jewish Orthodox believers still practice Sabbath on Saturday. And I remember a neighborhood in Dallas, and I forget the name of the neighborhood, it was south of where we lived, uh, but they had a synagogue, and an Orthodox synagogue, and a lot of Jewish residents. Uh, and if you drove through on a Saturday morning, you would see them walking to and from synagogue because driving was not allowed. It's considered a violation of Sabbath because you are burning fuel. And it goes against the prohibition of Exodus 35.3, which says, You shall kindle no fire in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, we may think this is strange or even silly, but they take it very seriously. The only exception for them is in life-threatening circumstances. Then they're able to use a vehicle. And then Orthodox Jewish folks, they're not the only ones who believe and act this way. So the question I've been asked multiple times this week, is the Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday? Like, what do we do with that? And how do we understand how to observe it? Where did the Sabbath even come from? What was the purpose of it? What was God's intention for it? Well, this is what we're going to be digging into over the next several weeks leading up to Advent. And we're going to begin this morning where all things began in the story of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter because it's a lot. Uh, and I'm not going to really talk about all of it specifically. 
but I do want to draw our attention to a few particular things. So join me as we begin in Genesis 1-1, and then we'll go from there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then jump down to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> okay. Now the story of Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is an origin story. Most ancient cultures have some version of an origin story. It was part of what gave them a sense of identity and meaning. Like saying this is who we are because this is where we came from. So when we read the story in Genesis, we're seeing how the ancient Hebrew people, the people who would become Israel, came to understand who they were. So let's, let's just join them if we can right there. Let's recognize the story told in Genesis is not meant to tell us a lot of the things that people look for in it today. Like, how old the earth and the universe are and all that sort of stuff. That's not the questions that it's addressing. Any of that sort of stuff that people get tangled up in. This is a poem. Or even maybe a song. And to understand it well, we need to approach it as it is. So what do we learn about creation from Genesis 1? Well, to begin with, we see that everything was created by God. And this is echoed in John 1, 1 through 5, where the apostle connects this act of creation to who Jesus is and his role in the whole thing. 
John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now what we see in both Genesis 1 and John 1 is that there was darkness and then light. That Jesus was the word that was actively forming and filling the heavens and the earth. We also see that he was the light that broke through the darkness. So we have darkness and disorder and then God speaks the word forward bringing light and the order to creation so that life can flourish. In this ancient Hebrew poem of origins, we also see a pattern, and this sort of helps us understand what's emphasized and what's important. In Hebrew, it's sort of like a roadmap for understanding just how significant the various elements of creation are. The structure is called a chiasm. I think I've mentioned it before, maybe briefly talked about it here and there. Um, but it refers to a sequence of elements of a sentence, a verse, a paragraph, or a chapter, or even a book sometimes, which are then repeated and developed, but in reverse order. And so I want to show you all a short example of that in Genesis 2.4. Chiasm 1, please, Kevin. Here's what we have in Genesis 2.4. This is a single verse chiasm. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so you have the heavens, the earth, the Lord, the created, the Lord God, and then made, echoes created, earth, and heavens. Does that make sense? That's basically what a chiasm looks like. Each, the top and the bottom are gonna echo and be paired the next two all the way. And then what that shows us then is that the Lord God is at the center of creation. This emphasizes the reality that all creation is centered on God. And that's important. And if, if we're just reading through this, we might think those kinds of things, but to see it in its structure really sort of points it out. Says this is the important part. So if we move back into our larger text without going back through it all, hit Kaizen 2, what we basically find is that in Genesis 1-1, God created. Also in 1-1, the heavens and the earth. And then from, I, I meant to put the verses on there, from 1-2 through 31, you get forming and filling the earth. Right? So day 1, day 2, day 3 are all forming. The 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 stars and the sun and the moon and the land and the waters and all the things are being formed. And then day four, five, and six, everything is being filled as God fills it with plants and animals and birds and you know creeping things and all. And then finally, humanity. Then we come back to heavens and the earth again in 2-1 and then God created in 2-2 through 3. So it it's, goes the same way. It's a chiasm. But what this larger chiasm shows us, we know that God is emphasized because he's a, he appears as both the beginning and the end of this chiasm. Or as John would later record in Revelation 22, 13, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But at the heart of the creation story is the forming and filling of the earth. God was at work. God was actively speaking everything into existence. But not all at once. There's, there's a pattern. And what we see from that pattern is that form and function work together. Creation was meant to work a certain way. And the main purpose of creation is found in the final component. As an echo of the first day, where God said, let there be light, and Jesus was the light that broke through the darkness, on the sixth day, God, we find God saying, let us make man in our image. There's the parallel. And then the Father proceeded to give mankind dominion over the rest of the earth to rule and to care for it. And this echoes the dominion and power of Jesus. And let me be clear, an echo is not the same as the real thing. We know that, right? We're not Christ. But we are created to be like Christ. And I want to say this as well because I think it's extremely important. When God got done creating humanity as the final piece of the creation puzzle, we get the following commentary. I'm going to say it again. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's the only time that we get this exact statement in the entire creation narrative. Every other time we get, and God saw that it was good. But on day six, God saw that it was very good. Which brings us to the seventh day. And maybe some of you are wondering why did I just skip all this and then start here at the Sabbath, right? It's because the two are inseparably linked together. If there had been no work, there would be no need for rest. Work precedes and necessitates rest, just as in this story, God's rest implies work. They go together. There's a symbiotic relationship between the two. They <coughs> depend on each other. And this is part of what we discover in this origin story, that God works and then rests. And this is to be the pattern for us as well. Now granted, the work of God is quite different from the work that we do. We don't create in the same exact way or to the same scale. However, we are meant to create, to make things. To fill the earth doesn't simply mean to have a lot of children. It means to be productive, to plant and harvest crops, to raise livestock, to make art, paintings, and pottery, and music, and novels, and all the things, to devote ourselves to making the world a good and fruitful place for us and for others. That God spent time forming and filling the earth necessarily means that we should too, in the ways that we are able. And this leads to a lot of questions that each of us need to consider on our own, such as how am I creating something beautiful in this world? How is what I'm producing filling the earth and reflecting the image of God? 
We could go on and on, but I'll leave that between each of you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, what we need to remember moving forward, however, is that we were created to work. And work is not a result of the fall. Some people talk as though it is. It's, it's not a result of sin. Working in the garden was our original purpose. That was why mankind was put there. We were meant to work the garden and to enjoy the fruit of our labors with our Creator. And that's what brings us finally to the Sabbath. In chapter 2, 1 through 3, when the heavens and earth are finished, we see that on the seventh day God rested. Now, is this because God was tired? Was the Lord exhausted from the effort? Did it take a lot out of him? Or was something else going on there? The word in the Hebrew there in verse 2 is the word we are after, and that word is Shabbat. And it does mean to rest, but it also means to cease, to desist from whatever one is doing. Tucked away inside the meaning of this word is a connotation of stopping in order to celebrate. In other words, to stop and enjoy the work so far. It doesn't mean to stop forever. And we can't infer that God stopped working forever because we know for certain that when Jesus became one of us, he had work to do. That he was God at work among us. God's work, God's work changed. What was once an act of creating the heavens and the earth became an act of sustaining the heavens and the earth. And God didn't hang up his work ethic on day seven. He gave it even more meaning by stopping long enough to celebrate and enjoy what he had made. And what this shows us is that we too should take breaks long enough to celebrate and enjoy the work that we have done. In 2.3 we find that as God was resting, he blessed the day of resting and made it holy. This means he set it apart to be different from the other days. God wanted to set a precedent in the origin story of who the Hebrew people would be and then down the road who we would become. God marked out a day for them to cease from their work and enjoy themselves. To celebrate the beautiful world they were helping to bring into being the world they were multiplying and filling. In a day and time when no other culture practiced rest in this way, when they all worked endlessly and tirelessly without ever getting to stop and enjoy their work, God provided a way for the Hebrew people to live differently than the world around them. A way to understand their identity as people who are not going to be like those who work work and work and work and never stop to enjoy their work. In addition, there's an interesting thing that happens on day seven. Each previous day of the creation story ended with the phrase, and there was evening and morning, followed by which day it was. But on day seven, there is no such phrase. Day seven is blessed and made holy, not because God was done working forever, but because God was done forming and filling the heavens and the earth. He wanted to stop and enjoy what he had made. 
But the absence of the phrase reveals that the seventh day was meant to be a permanent thing. That it was supposed to last for all time. Not that mankind would never have to work. We know Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to care for it. <clears throat> but the seventh day was meant to be the day when God's presence filled his finished creation and took up residence there among us. We're meant to enjoy both the Lord God and his creation forever. We're given the opportunity to cease our striving. The question is, do we? Do we even really know how? Now I've heard people quote Psalm 46.10 in this type of discussion. We probably all know at least part of uh, Psalm 46.10 by heart that says, be still and know that I am God, right? We tend to take that part and miss the rest, pun intended. Maybe we think it's just about being quiet and focusing on God during worship. Maybe we think it means we should have a moment of silence before sporting events to honor God. But the reality is that this verse has context that throws all of our thinking into a tizzy. So let's briefly look at the immediate context of this, and I think it will help our understanding of Sabbath. Psalm 46, 8 through 11 says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is about resting in the midst of a battle. About resting in the power and ability of the Lord to protect and provide. About ceasing from all our own efforts to bring about a victory and relying solely on God. To be still and know who God is means we stop straining to do things on our own. We stop trying to do what only God can do. It means we lean into the enduring Sabbath of the seventh day by trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. Or to put this another way, we tend to do a lot of unnecessary work, stuff we don't need to worry about, and God wants us to stop, to rest, to celebrate and enjoy. But God also wants us to trust, to lean into the rest He provides for us in our everyday lives. We worry about relationships and finances and what to do about our enemies who seem bent on messing with us. We worry about our state and our country and a host of other things. We try to solve all these problems on our own. We try to figure out everything ourselves. For some of us, it's never ending. We work ourselves to death. Not only are we physically exhausted, but we're also mentally and emotionally and spiritually exhausted. 
And invariably, our efforts don't really change anything. Often, we make things worse. Now, it may seem like I'm contradicting what I said earlier about our work, about our having a role to play in creation. But here's the thing. The differences between doing things on our own, by our own understanding, under our own power, versus doing things God's way under the Spirit's power. There was work to do in the garden, work that mankind was meant to do God's way. And then after mankind decided to turn against that and try to manage things on our own, what do we find? Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam, the Lord said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. When Adam and Eve betrayed God's trust and tried to take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, they brought down a curse on their work. What was meant to give life and beauty became toil and pain. Work became drudgery. But now, because of the continued work of God, specifically the work done by Jesus, we have been set free. In Him, we can once again work to bring life and light and love into this broken and fallen world. In Him, we can cheerfully go about our labor, whatever it may be, because now in Him, everything is being redeemed. We don't have to wait for Saturday or Sunday to rest in the Lord. Because it's not about the day so much as it's about the heart. We still need rest. Our bodies still get tired and we can be overactive sometimes. But the heart is at the heart of the Sabbath. If we come together every Sunday and sing and pray and fellowship, but our hearts are somewhere else, then it doesn't really matter that it's Sunday, does it? If we rest in the protection and providence of the Lord on a Tuesday or Friday, when our lives are falling apart, things are going crazy, then we have experienced the Sabbath of the Lord right then and there. As Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not about strictly following a set of rules about a specific day. It's about our hearts. It's about who we are in Christ. It's about our identity in this world. And hear me say this if you don't hear anything else. When the world looks at us, they shouldn't just see people who gather in a sanctuary on a Sunday. They should see people who are at rest in a world that is full of unrest. 
And this leads to one last thought from this passage, the sense of anticipation that God's seventh day rest offers us. Because one day the Son of God would die on a Roman cross and be laid to rest in a garden tomb where he would spend the seventh day in the grip of death before walking out of the tomb on Sunday morning. And on that Sunday morning, the first day of the week became the first day of an entirely new creation that God has invited us into. A new heavens and a new earth began to come into being just like Isaiah promised as the resurrection of Jesus rippled outward into the lives of his followers and beyond all the way through time to right here this morning. The new life that had been promised began to become a reality as the Holy Spirit arrived to seal the deal in the hearts of those who trusted in and rested in the work that Jesus had done. The life Adam and Eve once enjoyed in Eden before the fall has been revived in our hearts. Anticipating not just our willingness to take part in this new creation, but to celebrate and enjoy it. To long for the time when the creator of heaven and earth will return and once again take up residence here among us in person as heaven and earth are made whole. A time when we will be able to experience the rest of God in a whole new way as we revel in the work that God has done. Will you pray with me?